This time we'll go ahead and dismiss our children to go with Miss Kimberly to Kids Church. As they're exiting, I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone uh, for their patience and their long-suffering as we have uh, as we have been renovating our sanctuary, uh, I know that that each week uh, as you've come in, there's been a little bit uh, a little bit of of out of sortness, if that's a word. I'm sure it's not. I'm making it up. Uh, it, things have just been a little bit out of sorts, uh, and so we are nearing nearing the end. There are a few last minute touch ups that we need to do. Uh, but we want to thank you guys for your patience, uh, and I hope that as we have uh, reoriented things, as we have changed things up, uh, that it will all be used for the glory of God. And so we thank you guys for your patience and your long-suffering with us as we have gone through this process. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 17, as we continue to walk through the book of Matthew. We're not far away from... Uh, Jesus' triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21, and we will begin the passion, uh, the suffering of Jesus, and we will culminate with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension and uh, or his great commission in Matthew chapter uh, 28. So we're 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 nearing nearing the the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, uh, but I don't want us to to look ahead. And miss what God has to say for us, God has to say to us uh, through these last couple of chapters. So, Matthew chapter 17, uh, we're going to be reading this morning chapters 14 through 23, verses 14 through 23 in chapter 17. Matthew 17, 14 through 23. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy upon my son, for he is a lunatic and he is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often falls into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and how long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him. and The boy was cured at once. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move. And nothing shall be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, may you speak to our hearts. May we see the truth of your word. May we apply it to our lives. May your word indeed be true and living and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierce our hearts here this morning. We pray that we would leave this place knowing that we've met with the Almighty God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, it's my desire that as you leave, that you will leave with mountain-moving faith. That you will be able to move mountains in your life. That you will be able to, to make tremendous strides in your walk with Christ. Not because of who you are, but because of who your faith is in. And so today we're going to look at the contrast. We're going to look at the contrast of the transfiguration, which we talked about last week. And this, this moment where Jesus cleanses or Jesus casts out the demoniac here in the latter chapter of, of uh, the latter part of chapter 17. And I believe that it is, it is, that Matthew was very intentional as he chronicles the transfiguration at the beginning of chapter 17 and this episode with the disciples and the demoniac here at the end of chapter 17. First of all, let's, let's take just a very brief moment. And let's recap the transfiguration. We know that, that Jesus is up on top of the mountain with his disciples. And we remember from last week that anything really, really cool that God does, he does on top of mountains, right? The Ten Commandments, Jesus calling down fire from heaven, uh, Isaac and, and Abraham. Anything really cool happens on the mountain. So, so if, if you want to meet with God, go up on a mountain, right? Uh, no, we understand that, that, that God is everywhere and that, that certainly God can, can, uh, can and does move uh, however, uh, that God can and does move on places other than mountains. But in Scripture, we see that many times that God will bring His people up on top of the mountain to reveal Himself to them. And that's exactly what takes place in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up on top of the mountain, and He is transfigured before them. Now, I want to point out that throughout all of Jesus' earthly ministry, that His glory was veiled, that there was a, a, a limited understanding, a limited perception that the disciples and all of those, all of those who, who were witnessing and all of those who were observing Jesus were able to see. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Philippians chapter 2, and I'll see if I can illustrate how the glory of the Lord, how the glory of Christ was veiled to those whom he came in contact with. We understand that as Jesus was ministering in and around Galilee, uh, and especially in Nazareth, that, that people recognized Jesus as the son of Mary. People recognized Jesus as the carpenter from Nazareth. We understand that, that Jesus was very much a man. The scripture tells us that he was 100% human, that he got hungry, that he got thirsty, that he had to go to the bathroom, that Jesus had real emotions, that Jesus grew, it tells us in Luke, Luke chapter 2, that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. Jesus had to learn how to walk. Jesus had to learn how to talk. Jesus had to learn how to become a man. He had to learn the trade of carpentry from his father. Jesus had to grow. He was 100% man. But I also want us to understand that while he was 100% God, he was 100% man. He was fully God. He was 100% deity. Yet his deity, his glory was veiled from the beginning, Matthew, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Uh, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. Now he's God, yet he takes on the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men. And so while he is God in the flesh, while he is God, uh, John chapter 1 verse 14, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Jesus was God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, there is, uh, in, in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. All through John, we see the I am statements. I am the resurrection of life, the resurrection and life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. All these I am statements are clear statements of Jesus's deity. And yet, Philippians chapter 2 says, he empties himself and takes on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, in verse 8, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death. Jesus takes on flesh, and his glory is veiled. All that the disciples saw, all that the multitude saw, was a veiled picture of Jesus' glory. His glory was not communicated in a, in, a, in a tangible way because he was in an earthly body. He was in a limited body. He, was, he took on the form of a man in order that he could interact with us. Yet as he goes up on top of the mountain, that veil for just a moment is peeled back. And he becomes the very radiance of the glory of God. Look at the text, chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Remember last week we talked about the contrast between the reflective nature of Moses, how his face shone because he had been with God, yet Jesus' face shone because he was God. His face shone not like the moon, but his face shone like the sun, the very source of light. Verse 2, and his garments became as white as light. Jesus was transfigured before him, and for a brief moment, the veil of Jesus' glory was removed. And there was the presence of God. The scripture tells us that there was a cloud. Verse 5, and while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the presence of God demonstrated and communicated by a cloud. In the Old Testament, whenever God would show up over the tabernacle, God would show up over the temple, it was in this, this, this idea of a cloud. The cloud represented the presence of God. Whenever the, the uh, people of God were wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they were, it was a cloud by day that signified the presence of God and covered them and protected them in a fire by night. And so this, this idea in chapter 17, verse 5, that the cloud overshadowed them, that was symbolic of the presence of God. And then the very next statement, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, the presence of God and the pleasure of God existed there with Christ as he is transfigured before them. So, Let's contrast this picture. Jesus is up on top of the mountain with his disciples, with Peter, James, and John. And the veil is peeled back and they see the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus is the exact radiance of his glory. They see the glory of God. They come down from the mountain and immediately what are they encountered with? Look at the text. Verse 14. They come down from the mountain. And as soon as they get down from the mountain, somebody comes up to Jesus and says what? Help. Right? Look at the text. Falling upon his knees before him, he says, Lord, have mercy upon me. My son is crazy. How many parents have had that, have had that exact same prayer? 
God have mercy upon me. My kids are crazy. Many of us children have had that same prayer. God have mercy upon me. My parents are crazy. They come down from the mountain. They have just seen the glory of God revealed up on top of the mountain. Then they come down from the mountain and they see the reality of the fallen world that we live in. Up on top of the mountain, they see the glory of God. They see the power of God. They see the presence of God. They see the pleasure of God. They see all of this, this great epiphanic God reveals himself to them and they are in awe. Peter can't even continue to stick his foot in his mouth because God shows up. He has to shut up and be silent and God shows up in a mighty way and his glory is revealed and they come down from the mountain and as they get down on the mountain, immediately they're confronted with sin, death, sickness, disease. There's a contrast between the mountain and the valley. Great experiences often take place upon the mountaintops. In the valley, we see hardships, trials, difficulty, sickness, disease, suffering. Just as a point of illustration, the mountaintops provide beautiful sceneries. The mountaintops provide unbelievable views. You see the power and the majesty of God. Yet nothing grows on top of a mountain. It's in the valley where the storms and the flash floods. It's in the valley through the hardships and through the trials where there's growth, where there's sustenance. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. Jesus came down from the mountain. And they came to him, the multitude. And a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, for my son is a lunatic and he's very ill. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. There's a, most scholars believe that, that the son here uh, had some form of, of epilepsy, some form of seizures that caused him to, to convulse, that, that caused him to, to, to fall out and be unable to control his body. And so he would often fall into the fire. He'd often fall into the, uh, into the, the water. And his physical, safety was, was at, uh, his physical safety was at hand. And so this father comes to Jesus and he's pleading for mercy. I want us to understand the consequences of the world that we live in. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Do you realize that all evil, wickedness, sickness, disease, death is a result of sin? Many of us know someone right now who's suffering with cancer, suffering heart disease, suffering the consequences of, of, of a stroke, uh, maybe diabetes, maybe uh, take your pick. All of it is the consequences of sin. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not necessarily the consequences of sin by that individual, but of the sin nature of the world that we live in. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Therefore... 
Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Because of the disobedience, and because of the impact of Adam and Eve, because of their inability, their disobedience, the Scripture tells us that that all of man inherited sin nature. And that we are all under the curse of sin. And so, as we see hurricanes, and as we see tornadoes rip through parts of south, uh, uh, southwest Mississippi and north, uh, north uh, Feliciana, we see tornadoes rip through and destroy homes, and we see tsunamis, and we see earthquakes, and we see volcanoes, and we see plagues and pestilence and famine. It's a result of sin. It's a result of the fallen nature of the world that we live in. And so when a pastor gets up and says that it's the judgment of God because a hurricane destroys all of New Orleans, in one sense, he is absolutely right. But make no mistake about it, it is not a judgment on the sin of New Orleans but it is a judgment on the sin of Adam. It is a judgment on the Adamic nature of mankind. And whenever a tsunami rips through Southeast Asia and kills hundreds of thousands of people, it is not a judgment of God upon Southeast Asia. It is the judgment of God upon mankind. It is the judgment of God that is a result of the sin of Adam that has been inherited by generation after generation after generation, and we all stand under a consequence, and we all stand under the condemnation of sin. And so whenever, whenever your, your grandfather dies of, of cancer or heart disease, that is a result of sin. Death has come into the world. Disease has come into the world. Sickness has come into the world. Evil has come into the world because of sin. Period. And we need to understand that as Jesus is up on top of the mountain, we see the glory of God revealed. And as we come, as he comes down on the mountain, we see the consequence of sin. You see the contrast, the glory of God, the radiance of God, the shine, his face shining like the sun, the presence of God, the pleasure of God come down from the mountain. We see the consequence of sin. We see death, disease, famine. All of the consequences, all of the evil, all of the wickedness of this world is a result of sin. It's amazing that in God's grace, the God of glory stoops down and inhabits flesh, weak, broken frail flesh that he might once and for all remove from us the consequences of sin. That's nothing short of amazing. I want us to notice Jesus' assessment of the disciples. 
So they come down from the mountain. They see this, this, this man who falls at Jesus' feet and says, and said, falls at Jesus' feet and says, have mercy upon my son. Give my son grace. Give him mercy. He's crazy. He, he, th- th- there's something wrong with him. And then he makes this statement. Look at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 16. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Now, the disciples had previously been commissioned by Jesus to go and to preach the gospel, to go and to heal the lame, to go and to heal the sick, to go and to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they had already been commissioned to do this. They had already done this. In the earlier chapters in Matthew, we see Jesus commissioning his disciples. They go and in, in, in many ways that they're very successful at, at duplicating and replicating the ministry of Jesus. And so we see here that this man had brought this son, has brought his son to Jesus' disciples, and they had not been able to cure him. Now, whose disciples had they brought him? I'm sorry, of the disciples, which three had they not brought him to? Peter, James, and John. Where were Peter, James, and John? They were up on the mountain with Jesus. And so, so the disciples that were down had still a veiled understanding. In a very real way, Peter, James, and John had a veiled understanding still, yet a clearer understanding of the glory of God. But they brought them to Jesus' disciples, and Jesus' disciples had been unable to cast out the demon. And so notice Jesus' assessment of his disciples. Look at verse 17. He answered and said, Oh, you unbelieving and perverted generation. This is on the heels of Peter's confession. Remember, just a few chapters ago, A few verses ago, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for God has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. On the heels of that, just a few verses later, Jesus says, You unbelieving, distorted people. Twisted. You don't understand. You don't believe. Look at verse 18. Jesus rebuked him. The demon immediately came out. Look at verse 19. And when Jesus came, his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon? Why couldn't we do it? I want to point out three things. I want to point out, one, that Jesus endures our unbelief. How many of us throughout a portion, a time in our life, have ever been, as the scripture says of the disciples, slow to believe. Twisted, perverted in our belief. How many of us have struggled with doubt, with unbelief in our lives? And if you're not raising your hand, I'm going to ask the next question. How many of you have ever struggled with lying? We've all struggled at one point in time with the lack of belief, the lack of, of, of understanding. Or maybe we believe, but our belief is twisted. It's perverted. We believe in a God or we believe in a Christ of our own invention, which is called idolatry. You know, whenever, whenever the Old Testament talks about the golden calf and the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, it was not that they were worshiping a false god, a god of, of, of the Amorites or a god of the, the Canaanites, 
But what they were doing was they were worshiping a God of their own invention. They had created this golden calf and they said, you are the God who brought us out of Egypt. You are the God who delivered us from the hand of Pharaoh. They were worshiping a God of their own understanding, of their own invention. And I believe that in in Christianity, that our greatest source of idolatry is not worshiping foreign gods, but worshiping a God of our own invention. We fail to worship the God that is revealed to us in Scripture, and we worship the God that is preached to us by preachers, or the God that, that, that we manufacture in our own understanding, in our own mind. And that's idolatry. The disciples believed in Jesus, yet they believed in a veiled picture of Jesus. They didn't understand all that he was. That's why whenever Peter made this grand confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, it's true, God has revealed this to you, and I must go, and I must be, li- be delivered unto the hands of, of sinful men, and I must suffer, and I must die, and I must be buried and be raised three days later. Peter said, I will never let that happen, because Peter was believing in a Jesus of his own understanding. He was believing in a Messiah of his own understanding and a, and, a, and a Messiah of his own creation. And we do that too. We believe in a God that's going to give us whatever we want. We believe in a God that's like Santa Claus, that, 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 that we go to him with our, with our list and we expect him to fulfill it. We believe in God of our own creation. Jesus endures our unbelief. What great grace. Jesus endures our unbelief. The scripture tells us that God is patient. The word patient literally means long-suffering. That God suffers long with us. I am so thankful that God endures my unbelief. I am so thankful that that it is not contingent upon my belief for for God to dispense grace and mercy to us. That God suffers long with us. That God's goodness to us is not based upon us, but it's based upon His character and based upon His sovereignty and based upon His graciousness. Psalm 103 said, God has not dealt with us according to the greatness of our transgression, but according to the greatness of His compassion. And so far as these is from the West, so far as He removed our sin from us. And I am so thankful that God does not deal with me according to my merit, but according to His grace. 2 Timothy chapter 2 Verse 11, 12, and 13. I want us to hear this. Paul said it's a trustworthy statement. Now, Paul is dying. He understands that, that in a few short weeks, I will be killed at the hand of Nero, as he writes Second Timothy. He says this, it's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Look at verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God endures our unbelief. Jesus endured the unbelief of his disciples. Whenever they were unable to cast out this demon, did Jesus say, look, I am done with you guys. 
I'm going to go find some more disciples who will actually believe in who I am. No. When Jesus was crucified, he looked down from that cross and he saw none of his disciples except John hiding behind the women. Did he say, I am done with you guys? No. He met him on the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21 and served him, fed him breakfast. I am so thankful that God endures my unbelief. Secondly, not only does God endure our unbelief, but Jesus meets our need. Look at Matthew chapter 17, verse 18. Jesus meets our need. Our needs are not contingent. Jesus meeting our needs is not contingent upon our faith. Amen? Aren't you thankful that God doesn't require us to to have a level of merit or a level of faith or a level of obedience before He pours out His blessings upon us? Aren't you so thankful that, that, that God is not a cause and effect God, that we don't have to be good in order to receive blessings from God, that we receive blessings from God based upon His character, not based upon our belief? Look at what... The scripture tells us in John chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 18, that Jesus rebuked him and the demon immediately came out and the boy was cured at once. And then Jesus begins to teach. Do you see that Jesus met the needs of the people before he began to teach and rebuke? Jesus meets our needs. His grace meets us where we are. Jesus alone, and Jesus alone has the ability and the authority and the power to meet our needs. Why? Because Jesus and Jesus alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is the only one who has all of the resources at his disposal. God is the only one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God is the only one who has unlimited resources. And God and God alone is the only one who is able to meet our needs. And he meets us where we are. Thank God he meets us where we are. Thirdly, Jesus enables our ministry. Much has been given to this statement in verse 21. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. If we look at verse 21, it would be easy to misinterpret this passage. And say that the reason that the disciples were not able to cast out the demon is because of something that they did not do. That there was some some element of of action or inaction that they did not do. That that the, the favor of God, the blessings of God was a direct result of their inability. But I don't believe that that's what the text teaches. Jesus said... This does not come out by prayer and by fasting. Both prayer and fasting are disciplines of the faith that acknowledge one thing, our complete and utter dependence upon God. When we pray, when Jesus calls his disciples to pray, he is calling his disciples not to rely upon themselves, but to confess their need for God. When Jesus highlights and teaches prayer, 
He rebukes the Pharisees for their, for their prayer of eloquence and their prayers that are, that are loaded with, with, with words and loaded with, with rituals. And he, he commends the prayer of the tax collector who comes to the altar and says, God, give me mercy for I'm a sinner. The prayer that Jesus commends is a prayer of complete and utter dependence. And the discipline of fasting is a very real communication that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. And I am completely and utterly dependent upon you for my sustenance, for all that you give me, even for my life. And so I believe that as Jesus communicates to his disciples, this kind does not go out by prayer and fasting. He is communicating to his disciples that you tried to to do ministry. You tried to serve. You tried to, to do something that was supernatural under your own strength and under your own power. And the only way that we can do anything that is that is noteworthy for God is whenever we are completely and wholly dependent upon him and his grace alone. It says in Psalm, the, 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 the psalmist says that unless the Lord build the house, he that labor, labor in vain. And unless we are completely and wholly dependent upon him, upon his grace, upon the Holy Spirit working in us and through us, then we can have all of the programs, we can renovate all the sanctuaries we want, we can have all of the vacation Bible schools, we can, we can have all the events that we want, but unless we are wholly and completely dependent upon the Spirit of God to move and to work in and amongst his people, then we will be just like the disciples. Fruitless. Empty. But Jesus, in and through us, enables our ministry. Our ability is not based upon the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith. I want us to look at the text and see this. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. He says to them, they said, why couldn't we do this? He said to them, because of the smallness or the littleness of your faith. And that text in the Greek actually uh, carries more of an understanding of because of the incompleteness of your faith. Because the very next statement, he says, if you have faith of a mustard seed, which is really big, right? No, a mustard seed is, is, is small. And so why would Jesus say, why would Jesus say, well, you couldn't do this because you had small faith, and if you have small faith, then you will be able to move mountains. What the text is saying is because of your incompleteness or because of the the, the littleness of your faith, because your faith was based upon the wrong objective, because the object of your faith was wrong. And we can believe and believe all that we want, and we can be sincere in our belief and be sincerely wrong. It is not how much we believe, but it's in who we believe. It's the object of our faith, not the amount of our faith. And that, that, that's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 20 and 21. He says, if you have faith, of a mustard seed, it doesn't matter how big your belief is, but what it matters is who your belief is. Who are you depending upon? Where is your dependence? Because God moves mountains, people. Yet, He uses broken tools to do so. 
If you look back through the history of redemption, God uses a murderer to bring his people out of Egypt. God uses an adulterer and a murderer to kill Goliath. God uses Solomon, a man who built altars to unknown amounts of foreign gods to build a temple for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God uses Paul, a persecutor and killer of Christians, to be the missionary to the Gentiles. And in the first century, the church goes from 120 people in an upper room to upwards to 500,000 in less than 50 years using uneducated fishermen, women, tax collectors. God moves mountains, but He uses broken tools to do so. That He might get glory. And this morning, I believe that there are things that God desires to do in and through your life. And you believe that there's no way that God can do this. There's no way that I can do this. I want to encourage you with three things. Jesus endures our unbelief. He meets our needs. And He enables our ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You that even in our unbelief, You are faithful. Thank you that in our in our frailty and our brokenness you meet us and pour out grace. God, there's someone here who feels that God cannot use them because of X, Y, or Z. Because I have done this or I have done that and God could not possibly use me. Yet your word tells us that you have, by your grace, chosen to use broken vessels, broken tools to move mountains. God, this morning, may you meet our needs. There's someone here this morning that is facing a mountain in their life. And they need you to move it. God, may this morning, may we meet you in all of your glory in such a way that you enable our ministry and allow us to be instruments of grace. 
Father, as we go into this time of worship, may your Holy Spirit move amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray.